As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. They have to be kept in separate offices in Washington. Claudia Sam joins us right now, former Federal Reserve economist with a blistering note yesterday on America's economic growth. You were channeling Michigan's Justin Wolfers at Claudia yesterday, and it goes off a five-handle on GDP. Why is America so miserable if we're popping four and a half, five percent real GDP, throw on the Claudia Sam inflation, why are we so miserable with 7% nominal GDP? That, that's a tough one, right? There can, there can and there have been in the past disconnects between the kind of numbers that we see about the total economy and what uh, families are telling us about how things are going and where they think things are going. Sometimes families are correct, right? We don't want to discount this. And yet at this point, we have gotten number, like just all kinds of readings on what's going on right now, and they look look really good. So it's been a real slog since the pandemic began. <clears throat> Inflation right. has been high, but like things are good, especially the labor market. Torsten Slack writes a brief note today at Apollo, and it sums up the consensus of the Fed. We're returning to 2%. Lagarde said that in Marrakesh. We have to get back to 2%, I believe, to paraphrase. And the Richmond Fed has a model which is a higher R starred. Is this a Fed that's going to have the facts change? when they change or they change when the facts change? Yeah, what we've seen so far is inflation is coming down, right? Like if we had seen it still sticking or going up, then okay, fine, our star's higher, they gotta do more probably. That is not what we've seen. All of these models are based on past historical relationships and we're writing the playbook here. And the Fed has shown themselves capable of rewriting the playbook. They did that after the Great Recession. So they're gonna go where the data takes them, but it's really tough when the, the typical guideposts just aren't aren't working the way they have. Claudia, what do you make of the fact that the Beige Book and other anecdotal data really has pointed to a, a real softening, a slowdown, pain felt among the consumers, and the hard data keeps coming out surprisingly strong again and again and again? Right. I don't look at the latest numbers that we've seen, particularly that 5% GDP growth that appears we're headed at, and say, oh, things are accelerating, we're going back up to where we are. I think this is a sign that we're, we're bumping around a pretty good place in terms of a sustainable recovery. Obviously, that's not going to be felt by everyone. You can absolutely find people to give very heartbreaking stories about what has happened to them. And yet we do have to look at the totality of data, and it's like across the board 
looking really good. Like we could keep up a sustainable pace that looks a lot like, if not a little better than where we were before the pandemic. So do you think that this is becoming problematic for the inflation story, right? I mean, in other words, is this growth incompatible with inflation continuing to go down to 2%? Or are you basically arguing that it doesn't matter if we get back down to 2% and that that really needs to be what perhaps Fed Chair Jay Powell talks about today? We're going back to 2%. Like the Fed, the Fed is absolutely capable of getting us there. And they may get a little too antsy and we get there with a lot of disruption and potentially a recession. I don't question that target. It's as made up as 3% would be. So, you know, there's nothing magical here. We haven't seen signs of this being difficult. Inflation is still chipping away down. It's a different story if we start getting stuck and then you've got to think harder about what's next. Claudia Sam with us all a good analysis of recession and Michael McKee with us in Washington as well. To the two of you, I've got one question. Mike, let me start with you. Our audience on radio and television is looking at a mortgage rate of 8%. It's either outright shock or, or how do we adjust to that as citizens? How do we adjust to that within our daily life? From where you sit, Mike, is the Fed aware that a 30-year mortgage is 8%? Oh, of course they are. And I've talked to many of them about that, and they do recognize it is a bit of a problem and conundrum because they've raised rates and sort of killed the housing market uh, because they're in a different situation than we have been uh, the, since I can remember, where uh, their rate increases are so much higher than what people were able to take out mortgages at that nobody wants to sell their houses. The, it, the, the thought seems to be that if they start coming back down, they will get to a level, maybe in the threes, uh, where mortgage rates will come down to four or five percent and people might start buying again because that won't seem too bad. But yeah, that's going to take a while, obviously. Well, Claudia, bring this over to academics as well. You're writing the next paper at Jackson Hole here on the American housing market. Are we at a point, Lisa and I have talked about this, are we at a point where for elites like you, the housing market doesn't matter? Not just for me, right? There were a lot of people that refinanced or purchased housing when we had a very low interest rate. I mean, the housing market has been very disrupted, both in a really good place and now in a really bad place. Like This has been a tough cycle. And those who timed it properly, and there were millions of Americans who refinanced their homes, they're in a good place right now. And like yeah. you said, it does make a trade. They mm-hmm. don't want to sell. They don't want to let go of that. Lisa, we're completely colored by this in New York City, which is a completely wacko original housing market. To me, this is the arch. We have to live in our houses. I believe that, you know, like every month it's a mortgage payment or a rent payment. And these numbers, to me, have a greater effect than anything else we talk about. 8% mortgage filters into everybody's pocketbook. It affects their mobility and their willingness to move, especially given the fact that it's going to be unaffordable for the vast majority of people to do so. Claudia, I just want to bring that together full circle with this idea of the conundrum that a lot of investors have right now. Are we seeing a world that can manage with 5% rates and keep the growth profile that you're talking about and that we're just seeing today with claims coming in the lowest since January? Is that what we are witnessing? It's too soon to tell. But we, we are absolutely setting up what could be, you know, the the really important piece of this would be productivity picks up, right? That we're talking about growth is not just quarter to quarter, but we can really sustain it at a higher rate. Right. Then then we can deal with the higher interest rates. There are some glimmers of hope. Uh, I mean, that's all productivity looks like right now in the data. But 
that's the path. And then we'd need uh, Chair Powell to have a Greenspan moment and be like, <laughs> you know, growth has picked up. But we're we're not there yet. He shouldn't do that today when he does the Q&A. When we're there, this is great. Claudia Sun, thank you so much. Mark Esper, I'm pleased to say, joins us around now. Secretary Esper, fantastic to catch up with you, sir, as always. I wanted to lean on your experience in the administration. We've seen some landmark accords come out of the Trump administration, the Abraham Accords, just establishing diplomatic relations between Israel and places we never thought we would. We were hopeful that was going to take place with Saudi Arabia and Israel. It hasn't. Mark, are we learning that there are some forces in the Middle East that just don't want peace? Yes, of course we do. Um, and, and that is Iran, principally. And then there are um, uh, the proxy groups around the region that they support, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, uh, the Shia militia, militia groups in Iraq. Look, I think a big part of what motivated Hamas to attack at this time and the way they did was the fact that uh, the normalization accord between the Saudis and Israelis was moving forward, albeit slowly, but moving forward. And of course, if it was concluded on the terms that we knew that were leaking out, that would have meant a tremendous shift of power back to the Palestinian Authority, which, of course, we know the Hamas is uh, uh, is opposed to. Right. There's friction between Fatah and Hamas. Um, and, and of course, the Hamas's benefactors, Iran, would also uh, be hurt uh, by normalization because you'd finally see an alignment or an emerging alignment between the Arab states and Israel against uh, Persia, against Iran. So I think those are principal reasons why uh, this attack happened at this time. The political battle will be engaged, the look back, the 2020 hindsight, uh, Secretary. What I'm fascinated by is how we prosecute a military affair with Israeli forces, okay, fine, against terrorist groups. We've never really done this, have we? Well, I mean, you, you could argue that the uh, our response after 9-11 when we went to, into Afghanistan first to displace the Taliban and then... Of Fair. course, the pursuit of uh, of of, um, uh, of uh, Al Qaeda and eventually uh, ISIS, etc., was part of that. We, of course, yes, we went after ISIS in Syria as well. So, uh, but I get your point. Look, it's it's very tough. You have a con- an army built for com- big, heavy conventional fights, an extraordinary uh, soft capability going into a heavily populated, uh, dense area, trying to root out militants among the public and having to fight in multiple dimensions, right on the ground, above the ground, and below the ground. And it's going to be quite a bloody and messy affair. What would the Screaming Eagles do? I mean, I, you know, you've got tangible experience here. Do they do a massive bombardment a la World War II, say, and then go in? Or do you expect them to prosecute something different? Look, I think we've seen the bombardment so, so far. At some point, they're going to have to move in and go street by street, block by block. I think part of re- the reason why you see so many airstrikes is they're, they're rubbling buildings. Uh, I will tell you, you know, you refer back to my time with the 101st Airborne. When we were in southern Iraq in the, at the uh, Gulf War, we did we wanted to avoid cities because uh, city fighting is really tough. It consumes a lot of soldiers, uh, not just those you lose, but you have to leave people behind. And again, when you're fighting in multiple dimensions, this is really tough. So I think they go block by block being very careful to avoid civilian, civilian casualties. At some point they occupy, but the really big question that we don't know yet is what's the end state? What happens when they're done? Because at some point they're gonna pull out, they wanna pull out. And do you, what vacuum do you create? Do you somehow politically get the Palestinian Authority to come in? Is there uh, some type of inter-Arab peacekeeping peace keeping group that comes in? Those are the big unanswered questions that what does the end state look like? Secretary, you were defense secretary under the former President Trump. How would have his response been different to what we're seeing today? 
I, I'm not sure that it would be different in this moment. I, I would argue that it would be different with regard to Ukraine and other countries. But with Israel, given the close connections between our countries, our peoples, um, so much to share between our two countries, I'm not sure it, it would be that much different. Um, although I would say that I think Trump would probably take a harder line uh, and, and a more public line against Iran. Um, I've argued for that in the past. I, I know Secretary of State Pompeo has. And I would like to see more from the Biden administration about connecting the dots back to Iran, because I think at the end of the day, uh, while Israel can go in and decapitate Hamas and, and try and suppress them, unless you deal with the country, Iran, again, who's funding and training and supporting them, then I think Hamas, Hamas just crops back up over time. How do you deal with Iran? I mean, this has been one of the big quagmires for a lot of nations, especially given that people want to avoid, you know, World War Three. Yeah, and look, I'm, I'm not arguing for uh, strikes on Iran right now, but I do think we should see a consensus more emerging first between the Western democracies, United States, Europe and elsewhere about really finally tightening down economic sanctions on Iran. You could go after their uh, energy exports. And I know what that does to the energy markets. And then you could talk about further isolation of them. I just don't think we've seen a concerted effort over the past, you know, five, six, seven years and certainly over the past couple. In fact, some would argue that the administration has been so uh, eager to find a nuclear deal with Iran that we've we've given them too much. And, and look, there's a good case to be made for that. But I think we finally we need to recognize that Iran is at the root of all these problems. Secretary Esper, if we can finish on drawing on your experience, what do you suppose is happening right now? What we're witnessing from the outside looking in is a period of intense diplomacy, a troop buildup, seemingly on the brink of a full ground invasion. What do you suppose is happening right now on the ground? And what do you think you're going to see in the coming weeks and months? Look, I think from the Israeli side, uh, they're gathering intelligence, they're prepping their forces, they're, they're talking about their battle plans, uh, doing some final training and making sure they know the game plan to go in and how they're going to deal with it. Uh, I think that's happening at that level. At the same time, they're reinforcing their um, northern front uh, with regard to Hezbollah and southern Lebanon. And they also have to keep a presence in the West Bank in case that rises up. I think President Biden's done uh, make good moves, moving the carrier strike groups into the eastern med. The Marines will soon be following in there as well. But one thing that has been talked about is this. Look, if, if Hezbollah opens up a front in, in, in the north, we're going to get involved. We have to at this point, given what we've said about deterring uh, Hezbollah, Iran and others. And so if Hezbollah opens up a real front there, I'd see American involvement happening with tomahawk strikes, maybe airstrikes. But we have to talk about that. And as you know, there's the grander chessboard out there with regard to diplomacy. Uh, pleased to see Tony Blinken going around the region. I think it's important that we try and keep um, that Saudi-Israeli normalization deal on hold, make sure it's not dead. At some point, we're going to resurrect that because, in my view, if Hamas and Iran hates that deal, those are two good reasons to pursue it. And I think it would, it would really change the dynamics of the region. You've got about a minute left. If we can explore the following, I think it would be beneficial. Is Turkey the missing link here? Where does Turkey stand in all of this? <laughs> Turkey stands in every place. I mean, they're, they're, they straddle multiple fences, right? They're criticizing Israel right now. They obviously have a large Muslim population, but they're also active in, um, in uh, southern Turkey, northern Iraq, uh, going after uh, our friends and partners there. I mean, they, they play this game multiple angles. You know, on one hand, they're with us in NATO, but he's supporting Putin in other areas. And of course, what we're not talking about is there's a conflict emerging between Armenia and Azerbaijan, not too far away. So you, you see the world fracturing here in these different spots at this time. And and uh, it, 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 it all traces its roots back decades um, in many cases. I'm with you. Some of these key issues just totally off the radar right now. Mark, appreciate right. it. Let's catch up again soon. Mark Esper there, the former U.S. Defense Secretary and author of A Sacred Oath. No 
nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Awesome with us, CIO at New Edge Wealth. Cameron, good morning. Good morning. Let's talk about the struggle for those airlines at the moment. Is that just one sector? Does that tell you something about consumer discretionary spending more broadly? What is it? Yeah, where's Ozempic when you need it? Uh, I think that what we're seeing here is this dynamic that we are still very much in a late cycle economy, that there are winners and there are losers. There are those with pricing power and those without pricing power. You see it this morning, Netflix pricing power, Tesla, no pricing power. That has something to do with small tech ticket item versus large ticket item, but it also has to do with interest rates. And the cost of capital makes the operating environment more difficult. So in late cycle, you have to be hyper-selective when you're picking your equities because there will be those that stumble. I love, love, love your note. You go right to the top line. You look at the nominal GDP inflation overlay. You've got the magnificent seven sales growth up something like 35% year over year. Nobody's talking about the top line. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And part of that top line is because they have that great pricing power. Some of that is skewed by NVIDIA. It's pretty wild. NVIDIA is going to grow earnings by a thousand percent this quarter. A thousand percent. But even if you remove NVIDIA, the Magnificent Seven will still be growing earnings by 60 percent. So if you take out the Magnificent Seven from this quarter's earnings, earnings would be down four percent versus the down one percent to flat that's currently projected. Is that priced in already? I think it is. I think it is to an extent because you've seen so much multiple expansion. It doesn't mean that these still aren't great companies, but if you look at the the direction of growth, it slows materially going into next year. What you see is NVIDIA, for example, 1,000% goes to 33%. You see similar decelerations for other Magnificent Seven names. The market cares about second derivatives. So I think it'll be a really interesting test for leadership next year as we see that deceleration. John was asking about American Airlines and whether some of the disappointments that we've seen from American, from United, are specific to this sector or whether there's a broader withdrawal from consumer spending that you're seeing on the ground. Is there a dissonance between some of the official data and the anecdotal data like what we got in the Beige Book that points to a much more substantial slowing down? Yeah, there is. 
dissidents there. There's also dissidents within the credit card data. That was the big head scratcher. All the credit card data seemed to point to a slowing in consumer of demand. We did not see that, of course, in retail sales. The best explanation I've heard of that is because the, the measurement period was after uh, the credit card data was starting to roll over. So I think what we're starting to see is at the margin consumer spending is starting to soften, but it's not broad enough yet that it's falling off a cliff. And part of that is just because the labor market still remains mm -hmm. so tight and wage growth still remains rather robust. So what's your prescription except for low the boat on Apple? Julian Emanuel writes a piercing note today with Ed Hyman at Evercore ISI. They still are on recession 2024, but he says a defensive tilt is essential. Do you agree or can you be more optimistic and buy shares today? I think the defensives are certainly washed out. Right now you look at big, huge put option buying within the staples, for example, utilities are very washed out, but they're still very much in downtrends. Our preferred way is to say we're, we're willing to own cyclical names as long as they're high quality, meaning companies that have good balance sheets, have strong free cash flow, but the overlay on that has to be valuation discipline because the higher you go in valuation, the more you have room to fall as valuations come in, as growth expectations come in. Let's finish where you started as MPIC. You've seen the performance of some of these packaged food stocks. Yeah, they've just tanked. Absolutely brutal. Yeah. It's brutal. Mondelez, Tom, down something like 20% since the peak earlier this year. How much is that stock, that company, going to change this market? Look, I think that as long as what you're seeing is this shoot first, ask questions later, meaning that you're pricing in an impact of something that probably is going to take very many years to play out. And the fact that Walmart was already calling it out as far as weaker sales, that seems to be a really convenient excuse as to what they're seeing. So I don't want to, I wouldn't want to price all of that in. I think that's one of the reasons why staples likely are oversold at this point. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to lead the market in enough uptrend, but there's some of that kind of inverse of what you're seeing in the optimism around the, the medical stocks. So excuse, not a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Excuse, Bramo, not a reason. We are thrilled to bring you Seema Shah, Chief Global Strategist, Principal Asset Management. Seema, in the zeitgeist this morning, something changed yesterday, maybe something changed over the last 48 hours. Is it nonlinear? Is it quadratic? Is there convexity? Did something change in the last day? Uh, it certainly feels like there is a different level of momentum going on in the market at the moment. Um, we do think we're getting closer to a top. Certainly, you know, we've had a long held view. We've discussed this many times with you. We are expecting a slowdown. Uh, it is definitely not showing any signs of coming through at this stage. I think that's what really bond yields are responding to at this point. Um, but of course, the further that yields rise, the greater the chance that a slowdown is going to be even deeper. Um, now, momentum can take you pretty far, and there's a number of other factors, as you know, you've discussed in the program many times over again. Uh, deficit issue in Bank of Japan. There's so many things that probably mean that the right. floor for bond yields is higher. Uh, but certainly, we do think that as soon as you do get clear evidence of economic slowdown, and as, as long as we get a very clear signal from the Fed whether it's Powell today or later on, that should really mark the peak for 10-year bond yields. Okay, well, what I'm going to do, folks, is give you the perspective, but not all at once. We're going to drip these data points in to show the losses that are being taken. Just since early April, the 10-year yield has down in price 12 shocking percent. So, Seema, your question, if, if you were doing the interview today and not David Weston, 
Do you say to Chairman Powell, sir, are you even aware of the acceleration of higher yields? Well, I think it's a bit it's a bit unfair because actually for the Fed, just like the rest of us, we're all trying to decipher what is driving this 10-year, this move up in bond yields. Is it term premium? Is it the move up in neutral rates? And that is going to be really important for how the Fed moves on in its decision. Now, it's very difficult to figure out exactly what proportion is driven by which. So uh, equally, I think the Federal Reserve themselves are trying to figure it out. You hear it from a number of speakers over the past couple of weeks, is that that is what they're trying to figure out. Uh, and as long as they don't have an answer to that, then it probably does make sense for the Fed to stay on hold. Uh, but of course, you know, there's so many risks on either side that each moment that we don't know is somewhat damaging to financial markets and to potentially to the economy as well. Seema, do you consider treasuries still to be a haven asset? Because, you know, looking at the, 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 the way that things are moving in the last 24 hours, I think you do have to question that, certainly. Um, you know, given what's been going on from a geopolitical front and the fact that Treasury yields continue to rise uh, and the fact that actually gold has rallied, you know, it does set that question. But I think the thing is, at the moment, the market is so specifically focused on the strength of the economy, what the Fed is going to do, that they're almost thinking about the safe havens as other assets. Now, let's get beyond this phase of uncertainty with regards to the bond market. And yeah, I do think treasuries will return as a safe haven as choice. But at this point in time, there's so many different forces which are buffeting the bond space that it's it's difficult to really say with great conviction that today, uh, treasuries are your safe haven. There's an irony baked into a lot of the conversations that we've been having with certain investment uh, managers who are saying that risk assets are the new havens, that essentially corporate America and the corporations that have immunized their balance sheets are essentially in better financial shape than the U.S. government, than a lot of the sovereign governments that used to be the stalwarts. Do you believe that? Do you think that traditional risk assets, including some of the stocks that have been the highest flyers, are increasingly the haven assets of the moment? Well, I think that's true to some extent, and you definitely do hear that from, from clients and the, the way that they're talking about it. It's it's not everything by any means. It's very, very specific. You know, people want the big balance sheet. They want something which they know is going to provide stability and something specifically that they know is, you know, they have some understanding over a longer term. So, you know, they look at the short term and say, okay, this is very difficult, but at least over a longer term period, there are secular trends that we can put our trust in. Um, so, yes, from that perspective, maybe there are a few corporates who have that, that strength and, most importantly, will be able to withstand any further upper pressure from Treasuries. Uh, but it is a very difficult environment for investors, I think, today. And actually, yeah. it just makes more sense in that case to try and look beyond, as difficult as it is, to try and look beyond the near the next month, two, three months, and try and have right. a bit of a six-month, one-year outlook. That is very important today. Seema, you, you had a tour of duty at Treasury, and you were very aware, obviously, with Principal Global of the United Kingdom bond debacle, debt debacle, pension debacle of a number of quarters ago. Do you feel we're at a point of institutional risk where the degrees of freedom of bond managers with actuarial assumptions can't get it done and we become unstable within our conservative institutional money? Um, I'll tell you, that is a question I've been getting a lot of within the last 24 hours, as you're getting close to that 5% point. That is the, the main question. But I have to say, look, we are not detecting any clear signs of financial stress. Um, these numbers are certainly, um, I guess, concerning. 
Uh, we actually think that the system can withstand rates getting to 5.5%. The most important point, of course, is how quickly no, they can well, get That's that. important, Seema. You're saying the financial system can withstand a move to a 10-year U.S. 5.50%? As long as it is backed up by strong economic growth. So, again, it comes back to what is driving yields higher. If it's because the strength of the U.S. economy is that resilient and inflation is maybe a little bit contained, then yeah, I think that the, the system can, contain, can can withstand it. But I also have to clarify here as well that look, with financial risks, it's typically not in the area that you're looking at. So it's probably not going to be from the pension system. It probably won't even be from the banking system because it has been ring-fenced by the Fed. So you know, typically financial risks, as they arise, when they arise, it's in the place that you're not looking. Um, so we have to be a little bit humble about this and investors everywhere have to be saying, you know, maybe we can't see any risks today, but there has to be some kind of defense within your portfolios, um, potentially to, to kind of withstand anything that could arise as of yeah. you get closer and closer to that point where, where the frictions start to come up. Seema, we've got to leave it there. Seema Shah there of Principal Asset Management. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Netflix shares gaining in the pre-market after reporting its best subscriber growth in years. The company also announcing it's raising prices for customers in the US, UK and France. Brian Weiser and Madison and Wall writing this. Although a 15% price increase is significant, I know that it's likely the case that many, if not most, of Netflix's subscribers consume enough content to justify this cost given the high volume of time spent. Tom with the platform. Yeah, we had Brian over this weekend and he looked what was happening to the keynotes. You know, we just had the CFO there styling from Netflix. John, am I losing it here? Do I need to get out of the suit and bow tie and get into full Patagonia? I that's mean, like that's, the, the that's, that's the Midtown uniform. Yeah. And I I'm mean, against it. I, I can't so stay. I, I hate it. I saw two chaps walk across Park Avenue yesterday in their Midtown uniform, the Patagonia vests. No. I, my my favorite no. part of this entire <laughs> show is when you start, you know, going through an issue and all of a sudden Tom just is like, oh. I can see him out of the corner of his ass, the corner of my eye. No, just no, absolutely no, like going ballistic. The guy for Netflix is going full midtown. Full I mean, midtown uniform. Yeah, that's all there is Look, to if it. your stock's up, you can get away with it. Do whatever you want. Okay, if the stock's down, put on a suit. Okay. All right. Fair we're, permission. We're going to help you with your house, the streaming. Uh, John Farrow trying to cut down his cable TV bill by, 
I don't know, 30% or something like that. Brian Weezer has been brilliant on this. Principal senior media analyst, Madison and Wall, and he's really had an arch theme for a decade, which is don't give up on TV. Do you still hold that theme? No. You know, TV, it's, it's like finally done? Yeah, we're over. I, I mean, I, I wrote something yesterday, <laughs> uh, earlier this week, where I calculated that the total amount of TV ad inventory is going to fall by about 24% at least under curtain services. Where does it go? It goes away. People don't get as many ads going forward because even if people subscribe to an ad tier, they're not going to get the same ad loads, but not that many people are going to subscribe to ad tiers in the first place. They're going to take the increases in prices. They're going to cut their pay TV subscriptions to fund it. I, I, when, when you look at this, and on a broad sense, Michael Mabusian, 17, 18 years ago, on the concentration of digital product. Are we just going to concentrate down to two or three survivors? I think that that's uh, possible. I think there are going to be four or five more likely, just a lot of very low-profit players. But here's the big thing a lot of people aren't thinking about, that most of them can be global if they bother to invest in it. Netflix will. Uh, Disney will. We're not sure what Warner Discovery is doing. We're not sure how much Comcast will. They are. But I think that's the big thing, that they can play at a global level. So low profit, but double or triple the revenue, that's still a good business. Do you remember the death of the PC? Oh, yeah. And it used to be that line that every person who wrote that headline wrote it on a PC. Slightly ironic, <laughs> we're talking about the death of TV on TV. On TV, yeah. What lives on? Well, to be New clear, sports. paid TV keeps growing. Okay. People will pay for it. It's advertising on television that will, is going to continue to decline, 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 decline. But consumers will pay for it. So let's go to the Walt Disney Company. Where does it leave them and what do they do? That's such a mess. I mean, uh, here's the thing. Separating the, the network and the stations is kind of ridiculous. Separating the stations makes sense. You don't need that legacy infrastructure. Think about how you're going to position this company to merge with someone else. Having a regulated business like the broadcast stations combined with the network makes no sense, firstly. Um, I don't know where they're going to go. Um, they don't seem to have a very clear uh, true north like they used to in 2018. What do you think Iger was doing then? Just saying, come to me with some ideas? I think so. I wonder, I have a theory that he was getting really good advice from a team he'd built up over the course of a 15 years prior to 2018. You could tell they, they had clarity in what they were doing. And if they stuck to it, maybe it would have been worth less than it was in 2018, but it would have been a great 50-year business. Now, it's strategically all over the place. Are they going to split ESPN? What about A&E? I mean, there's all these businesses that... They're, they just don't have clarity well, around. Lisa, help me at your house. In my house, nobody watches Disney Plus. They're glued to Netflix. Is that... Yeah, but how old are they, right? I mean, how much is this a demographic yeah, but issue? Can Disney survive on the kids, you know, and well, that? To be clear, there is a very direct relationship between share of spend on content and share of viewing. Sounds kind of obvious. But if you increase the amount you spend on content, you'll get more viewing, right? And so if that follows, if Disney doubles the spend that they have on actual programming, they will get more viewership. When's there the pushback point when you do have uh, consumers that say, I'm not going to pay for that? Is there, have we seen uh, anyone breach that? Or is this basically the sky's the limit? We're going to be paying, you know, $1,000 a month for our, our entertainment. You're hitting on some things I thought were kind of obvious in 2018 when I had to sell on Disney back then. Um, but the point I was making was the cost for these services will be so much higher because you're going to churn. So Netflix can raise their price is 15%, but churn is going to go up too. Marketing is going to go up. The content delivery, of course, we're always going to be higher. 
When you talk about churn, this basically means that people are going to uh, leg in when yeah. they see content that they like, and they're going to leg Consume out when the they Beckham don't. series and get out when you're done. <laughs> and suits repeatedly, <laughs> like Tom and John do every night. But I'm curious, religiously, uh, religiously about whether we also learn something from password sharing, and that crackdowns on that do not lead to a drop-off in revenues. In fact, you just capture more. Yeah. Is this going to lead to a broad policing of all the people out there who are still using their parents' subscriptions when they're 33? I think so. The, and the more aggressive that Netflix or any streaming service is in doing that, uh, again, it's going to lead to higher prices paid by consumers. But again, there's this pool right now of $100 billion being spent on legacy pay TV services. It's only $30 billion being spent on streaming. That's a lot of money to shift. And Tom and I talk about the bundle, the return of the bundle. What, what does the future look like? Is it the past? I think it will look a lot like the past. I've called it John McCain's dream, right? Remember when he was in the Okay, House? explain that. Okay, 2003, right? He was chairman of the House, uh, or the Senate House Energy Committee. They were trying to create an a la carte world. Do you remember this? Basically, they were trying to make it possible so you could sign up, sign off yeah. for a given network. That was a big deal in the cable industry. People like me, I was a cable analyst at Deutsche Bank at the time. We were saying, this is crazy. It's going to actually cause a worse business. It's going to make, uh, consumers are going to pay more, less marketing, less diversity of content, blah, blah, blah. Well, here we are 20 years later and we got it. It's just at a slightly more aggregated level. But it's not positive for the economics of the business. Consumers might feel better about it, but they're going to pay more for the privilege. What does sports do? I mean, sports is still mega bucks. It seems to me that's all people watch, sports and the weather. And, and Bloomberg surveillance. But what does sports do? Sports is in a real worry right now because if basically the only people who are going to access sports are going to be those who keep with the pay TV bundle, you've got to really like your sports because you're going to be paying $150 or $200 a month. Exactly. 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 Yeah. And I don't know John's if up at 500 a month for English football. Disney put out uh, AK last night with uh, breaking out ESPN for the first time. Fun reading, uh, just to see just exactly how big it is. Not a shocker on the sizing. But, uh, you know, they're positioning to do something with that asset, which they probably should. Sports is, the, the problem is sports risks going the way of boxing, right? Not that bad, but in the way that boxing used to be this broad reaching thing that everyone accessed and consumed. And then it became oh. pay-per-view. And then it stopped having casual fans. Some of us had pro wrestling in gorgeous, you know, you get to get to the weekend just so you could watch 30 minutes in black and white. I wish you could see Brando's face as he's discussing pro wrestling. Gorgeous You do not watch pro wrestling. On a serious note, on a serious note. Gorgeous like religion. And then the sheet came along. There's a very interesting negotiation taking place in Italy with Italian football. There is a push by some of these leagues to go direct to the consumer, yep. not to sell the rights, but go direct to the consumer. And I think you've alluded to that slightly with boxing. Yeah. Is that the future for American sports? Yeah. I think many of them are going to end up doing something like that. So and the, the NFL is going to have its own network, its own TV network, and, and just pushes the game to, straight out. To itself. be clear, they, may, they will still prefer to sell to multiple rights holders, and those multiple rights holders will end up pricing it very high. Right? But the point is, if right now 50-60% of the population might consume a little bit of sports, half of those people are passionate about the sports, half are kind of indifferent, that indifferent group won't pay. There's a bigger question underpinning that, which is how much of the money goes to the content creators, uh -huh. right? The sports uh, members, these, the athletes versus the writers versus artificial intelligence. Is there a sense that a greater proportion of the money will go to the creators? Isn't this the perplexing thing with the strikes going on? The amount of spending on content has only gone up. Now, I think it's actually the showrunners who've been benefiting disproportionately, uh, the Jerry Bruckheimers, the Shonda Rhimes, et cetera. 
that I think is where a lot of the money is going and the distribution of talent around the world. I mean, think of how many people in England are now acting in a series running in the US, right? As an example, or all over the world, the talent has been distributed. And so the spending on content has been spread out. It's like a lot of other industries where we see offshoring in agencies or in other industries. It's the same thing for Hollywood. It's just the people in Los Angeles aren't necessarily the beneficiaries. I saw your point in me then, an Englishman acting uh, yeah, in a series. Exactly. In the US is this acting. This is know, suits. Kind of. This suits. is the Bloomberg like, suits. Not what it is. <laughs> Don't worry me, Bramo. You're Megan Markle. <laughs> no, please. No, okay. Oh, Bram Weiser and Madison and Ward. Is that an offensive thing to say? No. I, okay, all right, interesting. Let's just move interesting. on. Look at those bonds. <laughs> Look at those bonds, Brian. Good to see you. <laughs> Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.